Welcome to Just Listen, a celebration of literature from Nashville Public Library. For more stories and poetry, visit our website at library.nashville.org. Please feel free to leave a comment or to make requests or recommendations. And now, for today's selection. Today's story, The Farmer's Children by Elizabeth Bishop, an American poetry and short story writer, seems a showcase for the evil mother archetype. Although unnamed throughout the story and only predominant in the first pages, the stepmother shapes the remainder of the story with her sharp and austere management of her stepsons. Like our friend Jack London, whose stories of the Klondike can teach us what it is to freeze, Bishop presents us with the frost of a bitter winter night and leaves us to wonder where the bitterest cold is, outside under an icy moon or in the house, personified by the stepmother. Unlike friends of hers, such as Robert Lowell, who were vanguards of the confessional poetry movement, Bishop included very little personal information in her work. Bishop did not see herself as a lesbian poet or as a female poet. Because she refused to have her work published in all female poetry anthologies, other female poets involved with the women's movement thought she was hostile towards the movement. In an interview with the Paris Review from 1978, she said that, despite her insistence on being excluded from female poetry anthologies, she still considered herself to be a strong feminist, but that she only wanted to be judged based on the quality of her writing and not on her gender or sexual orientation. Bishop was consultant in poetry to the Library of Congress from 1949 to 1950, the Pulitzer Prize winner for poetry in 1956, the National Book Award winner in 1970, and the recipient of the Neustadt International Prize for Literature in 1976. Dwight Garner, a book critic for the New York Times, argued that she was perhaps the most purely gifted poet of the 20th century. Today we get to enjoy one of the few short stories in her canon of work. And now... The Farmer's Children by Elizabeth Bishop We begin. Once, on a large farm ten miles from the nearest town, lived a hard-working farmer with his wife, their three little girls, and his children by a former marriage, two boys aged eleven and twelve. The first wife had been the daughter of a minister, a plain and simple woman who had named her sons Cato and Emerson, while the stepmother— being romantic and overgenerous, to her own children at least, had given them the names of Leah Leola, Rosina, and Gracie Bell. There was also the usual assortment of horses, cows, and poultry, and a hired man named Judd. The farm had belonged to the children's father's grandfather, and although pieces of it had been sold from time to time, it was still very large, actually too large. The original farmhouse had been a mile away from the present one, on the old road. It had been struck by lightning and burned down ten years before, and Emerson's and Cato's grandparents, who had lived in it, had moved in with their son and his first wife for the year or two they had lived on after the fire. The old home had been long and low, and an enormous willow tree, which had miraculously escaped the fire and still grew, had shaded one corner of the roof. The new home stood beside the macadamized New Road and was high and box-like, painted yellow with a roof of glittering tin. 
Besides the willow tree, the principal barn at the old home had also escaped the fire, and it was still used for storing hay and as a shed in which were kept most of the farm implements. Because farm implements are so valuable, always costing more than the farmer can afford, and because the barn was so far from the house and could easily have been broken into, the hired man slept there every night in a pile of hay. Most of these facts later appeared in the newspapers. It also appeared that since Judd had come to be the hired man three months ago, he and the children's father had formed a habit of taking overnight trips to town. They went on business, something to do with selling another strip of land, but probably mostly to drink. And while they were away, Emerson and Cato would take Judd's place in the old barn and watch over the reaper, the tedder, the hayrake, the manure spreader, the harrow, etc., all the weird and expensive machinery of jaws and teeth and arms and claws, of direct and reflex actions and odd gestures, apparently so intelligent, but, in this case, so completely helpless because it was still dragged by horses. It was December and frightfully cold. The full moon was just coming up and the tin roof of the farmhouse and patches of the macadam road caught her light, while the farmyard was still almost in darkness. The children had been put outdoors by their mother, who was in a fit of temper because they got in her way while she was preparing supper. Bundled up in mackinaws with icy hands, they played at raft and shipwreck. There was a pile of planks in a corner of the yard, with which their father had long been planning to repair some outhouse or other, and on it Leah Leola and Rosina sat stolidly, saved, while Cato, with a clothespole, stood up and steered. Still on the sinking ship, a chicken coop across the yard, stood the baby, Gracie Bell, holding out her arms and looking apprehensively around her, just about to cry. But Emerson was swimming to her rescue. He walked slowly, placing his heel against his toes at every step, and swinging both arms round and round like windmills. "'Be brave, Gracie Bell! I'm almost there!' he cried. He gasped loudly. "'My strength is almost exhausted!' but I'll save you. Cato was calling out over and over. Now the ship is sinking inch by inch. Now the ship is sinking inch by inch. Small and silvery, their voices echoed in the cold countryside. The moon freed herself from the last field and looked evenly across at the imaginary ocean tragedy taking place so far inland. Emerson lifted Gracie Bell in his arms. She clutched him tightly around the neck and burst into loud sobs. But he turned firmly back, treading water with tiny up-and-down steps. Gracie Bell shrieked, and he repeated, "'I'll save you, Gracie Bell! I'll save you, Gracie Bell!' but did not change his pace. The mother and stepmother suddenly opened the back door. "'Emerson!' she screamed. "'Put that child down!' Didn't I tell you the next time you made that child cry, I'd beat you until you couldn't holler? Didn't I? Oh, ma, we was just... What's the matter with you kids, anyway? Fight and scrap, fight and scrap, and yow, yow, yow from morning to night. And you two boys, you're too big, and so on. The ugly words poured out, and the children stood about the yard like stage-struck actors. But as their father said, her bark was worse than her bite, and in a few minutes, as if silenced by the moon's bland reserve... She stopped and said in a slightly lower voice, "'All right, you kids. What are you standing there waiting for? Come inside the house and get your supper.' The kitchen was hot, 
and the smell of fried potatoes and the warm yellow light of the oil lamp on the table gave an illusion of peacefulness. The two boys sat on one side, the two older girls sat on the other, and Gracie Bell on her mother's lap at the end. The father and Judd had gone to town, one reason why the mother had been unusually bad-tempered all afternoon. They ate in silence except for the mother's endearments to Gracie Bell, whom she was helping to drink tea and condensed milk out of a white cup. They ate the fried potatoes with pieces of pork in them, slice after slice of white store bread, and dishes of preserves, and drank syrupy hot tea and milk. The oilcloth on the table was light molasses-colored, sprinkled with small yellow poppies. It glistened pleasantly, and the preserves glowed, dark red blobs surrounded by transparent ruby. "'Tonight's the night for the crumbs,' Cato was thinking, and from time to time he managed to slide four slices of bread under the edge of the oilcloth and then up under his sweater. His thoughts sounded loud and ominous to him, and he looked cautiously at his sisters to see if they had noticed anything, but their pale, rather flat faces looked blankly back. Anyway, it was the night for crumbs, and what else could he possibly do? The other two times he and Emerson had spent the night in the old barn, he had used bits of torn-up newspaper because he hadn't been able to find the white pebbles anywhere. He and his brother had walked home, still half asleep, in the gray-blue light just before sunrise, and he had been delighted to find the sprinkles of speckled paper here and there all along the way. He had dropped it out of his pocket a little at a time, scarcely daring to look back, and it had worked. But he had longed for the endless full moon of the tail, and the pebbles that would have shone like silver coins. Emerson knew nothing of his plan, his system rather, but it had worked without his help and in spite of all discrepancies. The mother set Gracie Bell down and started to transfer dishes from the table to the sink. I suppose you boys forgot you've got to get over to the barn sometime tonight, she said ironically. Emerson protested a little. Now you just put on your things and get started before it gets any later. Maybe sometime your pa will get them doors fixed, or maybe he'll get a new barn. Go along now. She lifted the tea kettle off the stove. Cato couldn't find his knitted gloves. He thought they were on the shelf in the corner with the school bags. He looked methodically for them everywhere, and then at last he became aware of Leah Leola's malicious smile. Ma! Leah Leola's got my gloves. She's hid them on me. Leah Leola, have you got his gloves? Her mother advanced on her. Make her give them to me. Leah Leola said, I ain't even seen his old gloves, and started to weep. Now, Cato, see what you've done? Shut up, Leah Leola, for God's sake, and you boys hurry up and get out of here. I've had enough trouble for one day. At the door, Emerson said, It's cold, Ma. Well, Judd's got his blankets over there. Go on, go along and shut the door. You're letting the cold in. Outside, it was almost as bright as day. The macadam road looked very gray and rang under their feet. That immediately grew numb with cold. The cold stuck quickly to the little hairs in their nostrils that felt painfully stuffed with icy straws. But if they tried to warm their noses against the clumsy lapels of their mackinaws, the freezing moisture felt even worse, and they gave it up and merely pointed out their breath to each other as it whitened and then vanished. The moon was behind them. Cato looked over his shoulder and saw how the tin roof of the farmhouse shone, bluish, and how above it the stars looked blue, too, blue or yellow and very small, 
You could hardly see most of them. Emerson was talking quietly, enlarging on his favorite theme, how he could obtain a certain bicycle he had seen a while ago in the window of the hardware store in town. He went on and on, but Cato didn't pay very much attention, first because he knew quite well already almost everything Emerson was saying or could say about the bicycle, and second because he was busy crumbling the four slices of bread which he had worked around into his pants pockets, two slices in each. It seemed to turn into lumps instead of crumbs, and it was hard to pull off the little bits with his nails and flick them into the road from time to time under the skirt of his mackinaw. Emerson made no distinction between honest and dishonest methods of getting the bicycle. Sometimes he would discuss plans for deceiving the owner of the hardware store, who would somehow be maneuvered into sending it to him by mistake. And sometimes it was to be his reward for a deed of heroism. Sometimes he spoke of a glass cutter. He had seen his father using one of these fascinating instruments. If he had one, he could cut a large hole in the plate glass window of the hardware store in the night and then he spoke of working next summer as a hired man. He would work for the farmer who had the farm next to theirs. He saw himself performing prodigious feats of haying and milking. "'But old man Blackader only pays big boys four dollars a week,' said Cato sensibly, "'and he wouldn't pay you that much.' "'Well?' Emerson swore and spat toward the side of the road, and they went on while the moon rose steadily higher and higher." A humming noise ran along the telephone wires over their heads. They thought it might possibly be caused by all the people talking over them at the same time, but it didn't actually sound like voices. The glass conductors that bore the wires shone pale green, and the poles were bleached silver by the moonlight, and from each one came a strange roaring, deeper than the hum of the wires. It sounded like a swarm of bees. They put their ears to the deep black cracks, Cato tried to peer into one and almost thought he could see the mass of black and iridescent bees inside. But they'd all be frozen. Solid, Emerson said. No, they wouldn't. They sleep all winter. Emerson wanted to climb a pole. Cato said, you might get a shock. He helped him, however, and boosted up his thin haunches in both hands. But Emerson could just barely touch the lowest spike and wasn't strong enough to pull himself up. At last they came to where their path turned off the road and went through a cornfield where the stalks still stood, motionless in the cold. Cato dropped quite a few crumbs to mark the turning. On the corn stalks, the long, colorless leaves hung in tatters like streamers of old crepe paper, like the remains of booths that had stood along the midway of a country fair. The stalks were higher than their heads, like trees. Double lines of wire with glinting barbs were strung along both sides of the wheel tracks. Emerson and Cato fought all day, almost every day, but rarely at night. Now they were arguing amicably about how cold it was. It might snow even, Cato said. No, said Emerson, it's too cold to snow. But when it gets awful cold, it snows, said Cato. But when it gets real cold, awful cold like this, it can't snow. Why can't it? Because it's too cold. Anyway, there isn't any up there. They looked. Yes, except for the large white moon, the sky was as empty as could be. Cato tried not to drop his crumbs in the dry turf between the wagon tracks, where they would not show. In the ruts he could see them a little, small and grayish. Of course there were no birds, but he couldn't seem to think it through, whether his plan was good for anything or not.
Back home in the yellow farmhouse, the stepmother was getting ready for bed. She went to find an extra quilt to put over Leah Leola, Rosina, and Gracie Bell, sleeping in one bed in the next room. She spread it out and tucked it in without disturbing them. Then, in spite of the cold, she stood for a moment, looking down uneasily at its pattern of large, branching hexagons, blanched, almost colorless, in the moonlight. That had always been such a pretty quilt. Her mother had made it. What was the name of that pattern? What was it it reminded her of? Out from the forms of a lost childish game, from between the pages of a lost schoolbook, the image fell upon her brain. A snowflake. "'Where's that damned old barn?' Emerson asked and spat again. It was a relief to get to it and see the familiar willow tree and to tug at one side of the dragging barn door with hands that had no feeling left in them. At first it seemed dark inside, but soon the moon lit it all quite well. At the left were the disused stalls for the cows and horses, the various machines stood down the middle and at the right, and the hay now hung vaguely overhead on each side. But it was too cold to smell the hay. Where were Judd's blankets? They couldn't find them anywhere. After looking in all the stalls and on the wooden pegs that held the harness, Emerson dropped down on a pile of hay in front of the harrow by the door. Cato said, Maybe it would be better up in the mow. He put his bare hands on a rung of the ladder. Emerson said, I'm too cold to climb the ladder, and giggled. So Cato sat down in the pile of hay on the floor, too, and they started heaping it over their legs and bodies. It felt queer. It had no weight or substance in their hands. It was lighter than feathers and wouldn't seem to settle down over them. It just prickled a little. Emerson said he was tired, and turning on his side, he swore a few more times, almost cautiously. Cato swore, too, and lay on his back, close to his brother. The harrow was near his head, and its flat, sharp-edged discs gleamed at him coldly. Just beyond it, he could make out the hayrake. Its row of long, curved prongs caught the moonlight, too, and from where he lay, almost on a level with them, the prongs made a steely, formal wave that came straight toward him over the floorboards. And around him in darkness and light were all the other machines. The manure spreader made a huge shadow. The reaper lifted a strong forearm lined with saw teeth like that of a gigantic grasshopper and the tedder's sharp little forks were suspended in one of the bright patches, some up, some down, as if it had just that minute stopped a cataleptic kicking. Up over their heads, between the mows, every crack and hole in the old roof showed, and little flecks like icy chips of moon fell on them, on the clutter of implements and on the gray hay. Once in a while one of the shingles would crack, or one of the brittle twigs of the willow tree would snap sharply. Cato thought with pleasure of the trail of crumbs he had left all the way from the house to here. And there aren't any birds, he thought, almost gleefully. He and Emerson would start home again as they had the previous times, just before sunrise, and he would see the crumbs leading straight back the way they had come, white and steadfast in the early light. Then he began to think of his father and Judd, off in town. He pictured his father in a bright, electrically lit little restaurant with blue walls, where it was very hot, eating a plate of dark red kidney beans. He had been there once, and that was what he had been given to eat. 
for a while, he thought, with disfavor, of his stepmother and stepsisters, and then his thoughts returned to his father. He loved him dearly. Emerson muttered something about that old Judd and burrowed deeper into the hay. Their teeth were chattering. Cato tried to get his hands between his thighs to warm them, but the hay got in the way. It felt like hoarfrost. It scratched and then melted against the skin of his numb hands. It gave him the same sensation as when he ate the acid grape jelly his stepmother made each fall, and little sticks, little stiff crystal sticks like ice, would prick and dissolve, also in the dark, against the roof of his mouth. Through the half-open door the cornstalks in the cornfield stood suspiciously straight and tall. What went on among those leaf-hung stalks? Shouldn't they have been cut down anyway? There stood the corn, and there stood, or squatted, the machines. He turned his head to look at them. All that corn should be reaped. The reaper held out its arms stiffly. The hayrack looked like the set coil of a big trap. It hurt to move his feet. His feet felt just like a horse's hooves, as if he had horseshoes on them. He touched one, and yes, it was true. It felt just like a big horseshoe. The harnesses were hanging on their pegs above him. Their little bits of metal glittered pale blue and yellow like the little tiny stars. If the harnesses should fall down on him, he would have to be a horse, and it would be so cold out in the field pulling the heavy harrow. The harnesses were heavy, too. He had tried the collars a few times, and they were very heavy. It would take two horses. He would have to wake up Emerson, although Emerson was very hard to wake when he got to sleep. The discs of the harrow looked like the side— those shields hung over the side of a Viking ship. The harrow was a ship that was going to go up to the moon with the shields all clanging on her sides. He must get up into the seat and steer, that queer seat of perforated iron that looked uncomfortable, and yet when one got into it, gave one such a feeling of power and ease. But how could it be going to the moon when the moon was coming right down on the hill? No, moons. There was a whole row of them. No, those must be the disks of the harrow. No, the moon had split into a sheaf of moons, slipping off each other sideways, off and off and off and off. He turned to Emerson and called his name, but Emerson only moaned in his sleep. So he fitted his knees into the hollows at the back of his brothers and hugged him tightly around the waist. At noon the next day their father found them in this position. The story was in all the newspapers, on the front page of local ones, dwindling as it traveled over the countryside to short paragraphs on middle pages when it got as far as each coast. The farmer grieved wildly for a year. For some reason, one expression he gave to his feelings was to fire Judd. Thanks for joining us. Tune in to another session of Just Listen by visiting your Nashville Public Library website at library.nashville.org.